Cool. So reading Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Marlon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord.
Okay, excellent. Um, great to be with you this morning. Let me begin with a, well, it's actually a sad story. Um, I saved it. It's, it's 20 years old, but it really struck me. Bob Carr was the um, Premier of New South Wales for oh, many years, won a couple of elections, etc. cetera. Um, and uh, in 1999, Bob Carr, let's see if we go, here we are. Um, in 1999, Bob Carr opened a drug summit in New South Wales, and he told the story of his brother who died uh, of a drug overdose. And in, in kind of explaining why it is that people get in, involved in the whole drug thing, he said this, the view I reached is that life is an inherently disappointing experience for most human beings. And it, it, it just really, I wonder, I wonder if, if you agree. And my guess is, as I look around, some of you are old enough to know that. Right? And some of you are young enough that it hasn't happened yet, but hang around, it, it's on its way, the disappointments. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Actually, I picked up a, I, I, I travel a fair bit, I picked up a book in an airport called Embrace Your Limitations, which is kind of a reverse self-help book. And as I'm reading on the way up here, the guy said, really, expectations are just disappointments that haven't arrived yet. So... That's kind of, if you live long enough, yeah. Now, what can happen, and inevitably we'll be disappointed with things, it will happen. The trouble is that disappointment can turn into bitterness. Uh, definition of bitterness, anger and disappointment at being treated unfairly or resentment. And that is true, isn't it? It's easy to feel that you've been treated unfairly by life or other people or things didn't work out the way you expected. And some people walk around looking like they've, you know, sucked on a lemon and you can tell, okay, but others, others of us are better at hiding it, etc. Now, of course, the good news is, if you're a follower of Jesus, that never happens, right? You never feel disappointed about anything and you would never feel bitter if you're a follower of Jesus. I, I think I can say this. Um, I think sometimes being a Christian can make it worse. Why? Because, hey, we follow a God who can fix things, a God who could just reach down and fix it, and yet I'm disappointed or I've got heartache, and like, if God's in control, why, why doesn't he just reach down and fix it? And so, is it worth following God even when things are hard and you're disappointed? Now, the book of Ruth, I'm only going to look at Ruth chapter 1, I hope I can motivate you to read all four chapters, it's a beautiful little story. The book of Ruth puts, literally puts flesh uh, on that question, where is God when life is hard, when I feel like I, things have been unfair, or when I'm deeply disappointed, or even bitter? Where, where is God in that? Now, you may have noticed when Jess read, um, if you've got Ruth chapter 1 open there, that's great, or it'll, it will be on the screen. You notice the, um, uh, the first words of the book of Ruth say, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, if you're not used to the Bible, uh, let me show you. The Bible's a huge, long history book. And let me show you where, uh, where Ruth or where the book of Judges is, where that all fits. Where is Ruth in the Bible? Uh, the story of the Old Testament, in, in Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abraham um, and promises to make him into a great nation, to give him the promised land and the whole world will be blessed through him. That's about 2000 BC. The slides are not as clear as maybe. Down to King David, 
uh, about 1,000 BC. So that, that, um, if you like, that timeline through the Old Testament, or the first half, is about 1,000 years. Let's zoom in a little bit more. You've got Abraham, uh, and then Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah have Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, one daughter, Dinah. And then God takes them all into Egypt. Uh, there's 70 members of Jacob's family, uh, or if you like Abraham's family then. 70 members go into uh, Egypt. They're there for around about uh, 400 years. They turn into a great nation. God uses Moses to bring them out of uh, Egypt in the Exodus, then um, they're in the desert 40 years. Joshua then, uh, if you like, conquers most of the promised land. Then there's a time of the Judges, and Judges is like a series of cycles. Uh, the people of Israel believe the lies of the prosperity gods around them. They wander off because they promise health, wealth, success. Um, and then because pain opens ears, God sends a nation to make their life a misery. They turn around and it happens again and again. That's the time of the judges. After that, they want a king. God gives them Saul. And then God chooses David to be a king. Where does the book of Ruth fit? Right there in the time of the judges. Now, um, judges is kind of blood and thunder and would be rated MA if you made it into a movie. And Ruth is this sweet little story of one family or I don't know whether a bitter story almost at the beginning, a little story of one family that happens on the side of the nation that no one would have noticed where God is at work. So let's read Ruth chapter 1 and let's see what, uh, what happens. All right. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. You think, okay. If you're a Hebrew speaker, you'd say, what? Because there's a famine in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem actually means um, Beth, house, and Lahem bread. The house of bread, the, gra you know, the granary place where there's going to be food laid on, and there's a famine. In Wemmer, there's, there's something wrong. Okay. Well, what's wrong? Before they came into the promised land, uh, God promised them this um, Moses just on the edge of the promised land it says the Lord will open to you his good treasury the heavens will give the rain to your land and it's season to bless all the work of your hands life will be wonderful okay it'll be great um, but there's a warning that if Israel wandered off and they um, uh, served the fertility gods around them and believed the lies etc what would happen the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land like powder from heaven. Dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. There's warnings about if they wander off, they'll wish their mothers had never met their fathers. That's the warning. So there's a famine in uh, Bethlehem and we're told uh, this man uh, leads his family away from God's promised land. The, uh, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of these two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. Uh, Ephrathites, the scholars tell me it's kind of an early word for the Bethlehem area. It may mean that uh, uh, Elimelech and Naomi were fairly well off to start with. 
Um, Elimelech as a name means my God is king. And Naomi, uh, pleasant, lovely, delightful. Beautiful name. If you've got a daughter, if you're going to have a daughter, call her Naomi. Pleasant, lovely, delightful. And Marlon and Kilion are strange names. They may be nicknames for the boys because they're Canaanite names. They're not Israelite names, Canaanite names. Uh, Marlon means weak or sickly. And Kilion means kind of um, pining or whingy. So uh, the two boys are kind of um, uh, weak and whingy. Now, they are probably nicknames, I guess. And they go to live in Moab. Now, if you're, if you're not used to the Bible, you think Moab, yeah, okay. Um, the nation of Moab had a fairly, um, how would you say, um, awkward, nasty beginning. Uh, because Moab, uh, the founder, here we go. Um, if you go back to the beginning of Genesis, Abraham has a nephew called Lot. Lot made the unfortunate choice to go and live uh, in the city of Sodom. You know that's not going to end well. So he goes to live in Sodom. God decides that uh, he will judge uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, interestingly, particularly for their greed is what the, the uh, prophet Ezekiel says. God rescues Lot and his two daughters out of Sodom. Uh, and then they're in kind of in, in the desert and the daughters decide they want children. And so they get their father drunk, have sex with their father. And the result of that incest uh, is Moab. Uh, so it's kind of, Moab's always kind of yeah, in the Bible. Where is the, t uh, the area that Moab lived? You can see um, uh, in the uh, southeast of the Dead Sea. So Elimelech takes his family maybe 80 or so kilometres and they go to live in Moab. The significance? Um, he leads his family away from the promised land where the Lord, the God of Israel, had promised to be. They go to Moab and in Moab they worship Chemosh, uh, a fertility god who promised wealth and success and everything. The catch was you had to sacrifice your children. And so they practiced child sacrifice. Now, Elimelech means my God is king, but he doesn't act that way. And so in the name of getting ahead when things are tough, he takes his family away from where God had promised to be. Uh, he calls his two sons, or his two sons ends up with names that will make them fit into this foreign culture. And gentlemen, I know it's politically incorrect these days, but gentlemen, you will affect the spiritual health of your family. You are the one to set the spiritual direction. All right, so what happens when they get there? But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. We're not told why he died. We're not told it's a punishment. It just happens. These two, Mo uh, these took, the two sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other, Ruth. Hard to know what those two names mean. There's not a lot of the Moabite language left. Ruth may mean friendship, but uh, the scholars aren't really that sure. So the boys marry women who've grown up in the uh, Moabite culture who don't know the God of Israel. Uh, we're told they lived there 10 years and both Marlon and Kilion died so that the women were left, sorry, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now we're not told it's a punishment, it's just the father and the two boys have died. In that, in that culture, to be a widow, in a culture built 
on an agrarian culture, if you like, built on, on farming, in those days to be a widow meant poverty. And more than that, in that culture, the way that you were somebody, the way that you mattered was with your family and your descendants. Now, it's not true today and it's certainly not true in a Christian community, but in those days, it was your children and your descendants that made you someone. So you got three widows all staring down the barrel of poverty with no, without a man to kind of provide for them um, and no children. What are we told? Verse 6. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. She set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, you notice, by the way, um, where Lord is in all capitals, uh, that's the personal name of the God of Israel. We think it's pronounced Yahweh, but Lord, the God of Israel. And what's he done? He's been kind to Israel. He's sent rain. Food is growing again. Food's plentiful. Um, Naomi realizes she, she needs to go home. The, her husband, her boys have died. Her Really, her only hope is to go home. Uh, and so with everything she owns, she packs up and off she goes. She's got to walk the 80 kilometers or so home. Naomi, like I said, no husband, no sons. She really needs these two girls who will look after her. But look what she says in verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband, then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Let me read to you, from, it won't be all on the screen, from verse 10. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, and go, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She actually blames God for this. And you know what? Yeah, God's done it. She's right. God has done this. Uh, and yet, it's the severe mercy of God. And that is a phrase I reckon every believer needs to understand, the severe mercy of God. He has a reason why he has done this. She can't see it at the time. And she's told the girls to go home. Why? I'll tell you why. Because she loves them and she realizes if these two Moabite girls come back to Israel, they will be second-class citizens. They'll be treated with racism. Uh, they'll be looked down on. They probably will never marry again. They'll be widows. They'll be poor. It'll be um, bleak. And she loves them. And so she kind of takes one for the team and says, no, no, go home. Verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she, Naomi, said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. 
I've thought about verse 15, and I can't help but wonder where it says she's gone back to her God. I, I just wonder when it says she's gone back to her people and her gods, I just wonder if we're meant to see that Naomi's faith is kind of hanging, hanging by a thread. Uh, she's, she's in a world of pain. And then Ruth gives, if it's not the sweetest speech in the whole Bible, it's got to be, you know, in the top two or three. Look at what she says. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. What does is, what is she promise this older you know, frail lady, that she'll live with Naomi and care for her all her life. It's actually a stronger commitment than marriage. Like in marriage, like you're set free when your, part, your partner dies. That didn't quite come out the way I meant. Um, <laughs> uh, what do I mean? I mean, uh, marriage is till death do we part and then, oh, you know what I mean. You said... <laughs> She'll probably never hear this talk anyway. Um, <laughs> sorry, broke my rhythm there. Um, and you notice what she says, your God will be my God, right? And then, she, and then Lord in capital letters, may the Lord do to me and more also. She's become a follower of the God of Israel, of Yahweh. Now how? Well, we're not told, but my guess is this Moabite girl had lived with this family and who followed Yahweh, and she's come to know him and to truly trust him. And this is a massive act of trust. She's saying, I will, I will commit to you for the rest of my life, and I will come back to Israel, where I'll expect to be a second-class citizen, treated badly, probably victim of racism, etc., etc., but I'll do this, and I'll, I'll trust the God of Israel as I do it. You know, it's, it's kind of the complete opposite to prosperity theology. And, you know, prosperity theology tells you if you just, you know, come to Jesus and you'll get all everything you want and you'll be successful and beautiful and have wrinkle-free skin and lots of money and all, of, you know, whatever. Except there is a problem with that. And that, that's this. If you sign up to follow Jesus so he'll give you X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z is actually a true God. Jesus is just a means to an end, okay? And, and God doesn't promise all of that. And so what, what breaks my heart about the prosperity theology thing is this, it dishonors Jesus ultimately and then people don't get what they're wrongly promised and then they blame God for that. What does God promise? Give me a few more minutes and we'll look at that. Okay, we'll see that at the end. But Ruth says, I'm, I'm going to lay down my life, I'll trust the God of Israel I'll lay down my life to look after you. And Naomi sees there's no talking her out of it. Verse 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Uh, great scene. There's different artists have tried to capture, um, you know, Ruth and Naomi. Uh, this one, um, there, there, lots, lots of different. And you can see, anyway, uh, right Verse 19, so the two of them, they walked their 80 kilometres home. 
So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. It's just a little village. Uh, and the women said, is this Naomi? And so verse 20, Naomi said to them, do not call me Naomi. Pleasant, sweet. Call me Mara. And Mara means bitter. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. Notice her, Ruth the Moabite. Almost every time she's spoken about in the book, it's Ruth the Moabite, uh, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. You see what she says, the Lord's brought me back empty. I can't help but think, if her husband had not died, if her two boys hadn't died, she would never have come home. If she'd been in Moab and life was going really well and they were making a fortune, etc., and, and life was great, and she would never have come back to the God of Israel. It's God's severe mercy. But she has come back bitter to the point of wanting to change her name to being called Bitter, okay? And she's come back empty. Well, all she's got is this Moabite girl. Uh, she's got nothing, just a girl and she's a Moabite. So she's bitter. Now, part of what I do as, as kind of the old bloke around the place is sometimes I, um, I help do assessments or interviews for young couples thinking of planting a church. And so I'll listen to a lot of uh, young preachers as, as they speak. And uh, there's one young bloke who's just out of Bible college a year or two, and um, he spoke on Ruth chapter 1. And he got to the end of Ruth chapter 1, and, uh, and he said, um, now, uh, bitterness. The New Testament says, don't be bitter at least three times, in Ephesians, Hebrews, and James. And so Hebrews chapter 4 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. So stop being bitter. And I thought, oh, mate, you, you can't just say that to a church full of people. Stop being bitter. Why? I think he's 30 and life's wonderful and he's all shiny and it's, it's just great and nothing bad's happened yet and he's enthusiastic and I think that's great. But, mate, life hasn't kicked the crap out of you yet, has it? Because huh? it's going to happen. And when it does, he might, he might just stop and think, what do, you, what do you say to someone like that? You can't just say, oh, stop being bitter. Uh, what's, what's bitterness? Do you remember? Anger and disappointment at being treated unfairly or resentment. What would you say to her? What would you say to her when she comes back home and says, just, you know, I've lost my husband, I've lost my sons, don't call me pleasant or sweet, call me bitter. What? What would you say to him? I've thought about that a lot because I talk to people who struggle or, and I've, I've got a few things as well. And I think what I'd say is this, Naomi, you don't know it, but this is only chapter one. You, you're in the middle of it. You're hurting and squealing and that's absolutely fine to understand. But it's only chapter one and there's three more chapters that you don't know about. 
And I say this, it sounds like a cliche, but it's not. Uh, Naomi, you trust God and it'll be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. And as you read on, um, sorry, spoiler alert, but uh, I hope I can motivate you to read it. As you read on, you see, actually, God cares for Naomi. He cares for her and he puts her life back together. Um, why, Why do I like this little book? Partly because it's just full of ordinary people. It's not on the national stage. Uh, It's just kind of ordinary people in their ordinary lives. And you know what? God loves ordinary people. He made lots of us. And another thing, as you read the book, there's no miracles. Okay. There's no prophets. There's nothing spectacular. So where's, where's God in the book? Well, as you read it, the fingerprints of God are all through it. But Naomi would have only seen them in hindsight as she looks back. And that's very often the way God works. If you're a believer, that's how God will be at work in your life. You'll look back and you'll see the fingerprints of God in your life that you maybe couldn't see at the time. So what happens? Well, in chapter 2, Ruth goes out to work. By the way, when did they arrive? Oh, barley harvest. Ruth goes out to work in the fields and glean to be able to pick up scraps, basically, to feed themselves. And she just happens to wander into the field of the one man on the planet who can fix all of this, right? whose grandmother or great-grandmother just happened to be a foreigner from Jericho who has been brought into, and he gets it, and he treats her right, and then um, she meets the one man who can fix things. And you see, God puts it all together. And the way God cares for her is not miraculous. I'll tell you how God cares for her. God's people act the way that he says, and they treat each other the right way who would have thought and so you get to the end of the story and we're told as Naomi holds her grandson okay what are we told he the grandson he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law right Ruth the Moabite your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth um the idea of having seven sons uh, was kind of the, the, it might sound like a nightmare for some of you, no. Uh, in Israel, it was the perfect family, okay? So you could have seven sons, that's not as good as having Ruth, is what they're saying. And the grandson that she holds, Ruth, sorry, spoiler alert, Ruth and Boaz, right, have a boy. And then we're told, what happens? Then Naomi took the child um, and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighbourhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of King David. And of course, um, actually, I'm not sure how the book ended up being called the book of Ruth. It probably should be called the book of Naomi. And Naomi ends up, if you like, the great, 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 great grandmother of, of who? Come on, you can do it. Jesus, yes, well done. It's always the answer, isn't it? Yep, Jesus. And so Naomi says, call me Mara, bitter. It's only chapter one. Now, she's hurting, she's squealing, it's hard to think. If If you're dealing with disappointment and so on, and you're a believer, you need to remember it's only chapter one. It'll, it'll be all right in the end. 
God's got this. And so how do you respond? Well, interesting, um, that Ephesians quote, um, let all bitterness, wrath, anger and clamour and slander right, be put away from you along with all malice. Why should you stop being bitter? Right? Why those things? I think malice is just anger that's gone a little bit cooler. Right? Why? Well, verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. You can treat other people the okay. You can let go of the bitterness. Why? Because of what God has done for us in Jesus and the price of forgiveness and giving it to us for free. Now, let me pull just a couple of threads together. Life may not go the way that you would write the script. In fact, and probably I could say, life definitely will not go the way that you would write the script. So what does God promise? doesn't promise you'll be successful and beautiful and all that. What does he promise? He promises this, if you're a follower of Jesus. Let's have a look at Romans chapter 8, just these um, two verses. Now, there's so much in here, but I just want to pick out one truth of the many that are there, okay? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, you, you love God, you belong to him, you follow Jesus. It's what he's been saying in the book of Romans. You belong to Jesus. Everything that happens right, will happen for your good. Great. But what's the good? You see the next, is, the good is to be conformed to the image of his son, to be made like Jesus. Right? So that's the promise. If you belong to Jesus, everything that happens will, be, will work together to make you like Jesus. That's great news. Uh, here's just a slight, what's the word, just a slight addition. The easy things in life don't really change us. Enjoy them. If life's going really well and you're living the dream, fantastic. But those things in life, the, the easy things don't really change us. Have you ever heard anyone say, you say, oh, I haven't seen you before. Where have you been? They say, oh, we've been on a round-the-world trip and uh, we went to, you know, a dozen different countries and we went shopping and it was beautiful and we uh, saw the Grand Canyon and we travelled here and there and we went to Machu Picchu and all that, whatever, you know, and we've come back after a massive holiday and... And I'm a changed person. No, just go on a holiday and enjoy it, but it won't change your character. God will put hard things into our lives. Why? Because those, the hard things are what mould you and change you and teach you. Let me give you just an example. There's a man called John Roberts, who uh, is still the Chief Justice uh, of the United States, or he was last week when I checked, Okay. Who knows what's happening in the United States? Um, I understand that he's a, a committed Roman Catholic, uh, but he spoke at his son's um, middle high school graduation, and he talks about the hard things in life and, and what they may do to you. Now, this isn't exactly the same as Romans 8, but it, it's quite a good idea. The, the hard things in life and how you respond and what they may do. Listen to what he said. He said, from time to time in the years to come, I hope you will be treated unfairly so that you will come to know the value of justice. Right, this is the high school kids. I hope you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, I hope you will be lonely from time to time so that you will not take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck again from time to time so that you'll be conscious of the role of chance in life 
and understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failure of others is not completely deserved. And when you lose, as you will from time to time, I hope every now and then your opponent will gloat over your failure. It is a way for you to understand the importance of sportsmanship. I hope you'll be ignored so that you'll know the importance of listening to others. And I hope you'll have just enough pain to learn compassion. Whether I wish these things or not, you are go they are going to happen. And whether you benefit from them or not will depend on your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. Now, if he can say that about life generally, how much more should the one who trusts the Lord Jesus be able to accept hard things that he will put into our life to change and mould our character, to teach us patience and compassion and a willingness to listen, etc. Um, all right, what was that promise from God again? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Will you pray with me?